This is Utano Public Health Chats with your host, Fiona. And today I'm excited to introduce yet another friend of mine. And uh, we're going to hear about his career path in public health. Um, a little background. I think I've known today's guest for, when was it? 2020. 2020. So approximately two years now. And we also worked together for a little bit. So overlapped in our work. And um, yeah, I thought that would be a good add to the show, a different perspective. And also, I'm really trying so hard with this show to have people from many different backgrounds um, and also from many different African countries to see different people with their career paths. So it's also exciting to have all that different perspective um, from a person I know personally from my time here in Kigali and who is as passionate about the work we do as I am. So um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, Siabonga. Um, so please go ahead and tell us you know, a little bit about yourself, your background, where you're from, what you do right now, and where you're based, what the countries you've worked or supported in in public health. Thank you, Fiona. Um, I wish there were like all those lights and flames and all the Super Bowl fun to, intru- to introduce myself. <laughs> but <laughs> here we are. Uh, my name is Sia Bongando Andre. I was born and raised in Swaziland. I currently work in London in academia, and we have worked together in, in Kigali in the past two years, and I'm interested in public health uh, right now. I'm a computational health economist uh, interested in health policy and health system, major health systems change. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> that is a lot of big words. <laughs> So computational health econ- economist, and then you said health policy. We're interested in health policy and health systems research. So we'll put pins on all of those things <laughs> and unpick unpack them later in the episode. But yeah, thank you so much for coming to the show and being my guest. Excited to hear more from you. Can you tell us a little bit, Sia, about how, I guess, how does one become a computational health economist? Or where does your journey start um, to becoming a computational health economist? My journey started quite early. I've always wanted to be a doctor, but not uh, a a patient-facing doctor. So I didn't want to do clinics. I was clear on that. I wanted Um, to be like a military doctor because you wouldn't see as many, the general public, for for example. But things shifted really when I took my first economics class uh, when I finished high school and did my IB. And I had never done economics before, but economics gave me the framework to understand how the world worked, whether you're looking at uh, how do we end up having a $3,000 pair of sneakers or how do we end up having, or how do we get your bread in the morning and mm-hmm. how do households uh, ration their income? So, and that applies to all systems, uh, whether that is in the household, in government, uh, or even the club at large. Um, so that's where I saw that framework applying to health. And uh, in college, I decided to do uh, economics. But I've always maintained an interest in in health. Um, so, for example, in college, most of my internships were in health-related fields, and my major ten papers were in health were health economics related. Then comes the major questions: What is computational health economics, and how 
uh, does one become a computational health economics? Uh, basically, it, it it's at an intersection of economics, statistics, mm-hmm. uh, data science, or big data, as as, as it is called um, mm-hmm. right now. And and it, it doesn't really take a lot, and it's not like uh, you need to take a computational economist uh, <laughs> exam and be called okay. uh, CR, uh, computational health economist. Uh, no, it's mostly about the skills that you have. I, for one, I do most of my research and analysis in on the computer. That's one. <laughs> Yeah. So you can use your Excel, maybe, and call yourself health economist, but I doubt. But so I use uh, mostly like data uh, R to really think through about how do we process large data sets, whether mm-hmm. that is um, that is claims data from health insurers or mm-hmm. it's uh, patient data from the facilities, and then processing that data to get insights on how you can improve the health system and how you can improve uh, health outcomes. I, I think that's my definition of uh, computational health economists. And I think there are other computational health economists that may have a different perspective. Yeah. So I think, and then now coming here to where I am right now, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what I do, processing large data sets to get meaningful insights, transformative insights, uh, I would say, and transformative for both the patient outcomes, but also for the systems, for the system at large, which is why I said I'm interested in major systems uh, change. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Online, I mean, I've never worked with claims data, but I am just thinking about, yeah, t- this one time, yeah, having to file health claims and just like the process of like, it's very convoluted. So I guess that brings me, so I'm thinking about it at like a very one single data point. Um, perspective, but maybe can you talk a little bit about, so you said you're working with, I guess, the, you know, the buzzword big data or large data sets. So, and you say claims data. So currently either in your work right now or in previous work where you worked with large data sets, where do you get these data sets from? Like who's collecting this data? So usually you get these data sets from health insurers mm-hmm. uh, and depending on what they are interested in in understanding their their patients. Sometimes you get the data aggregated at the um, household level, mm-hmm. and sometimes you get it aggregated at facility level, or even as granular as each visit per enrollee to a facility. And that's a lot of data sets, and you can get so much information in terms of both patient behavior, but also the health provider's behavior. So for example, you can use that data set to understand whether providers are providing too much uh, antibiotics, mm-hmm. uh, which is a project that I worked on uh, in Eswatini, actually, to look at uh, uh, antibiotic prescription in primary healthcare for for kids uh, who are showing up with diarrhea. Um, but you can also you you can also have you can integrate user generated uh, data. Now we wear uh, smart watches. Uh, you can look at how. how that data changes over time, over the day and across a population uh, to get some insights in terms of uh, what would their needs look like maybe in five, 10 years. And as much as that is an interesting site, I haven't worked on it, but it would be great uh, to to work on it. That's just to say that the application of 
of big data in health is quite limitless at this mm-hmm. point as we get huge, huge data sets and we need to comb through those data sets to understand uh, what is more meaningful to whom and when. Yeah. yeah. So you, for, for, for example, you have companies like Google, like Apple, who, are, mm-hmm. who have specialized uh, health departments. So to say Google Health, you have Apple Health or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do, understanding their patients, uh, understanding data sets to, make, to, to create a picture of what's happening right now. But most importantly, to then try to predict what could happen in the future. And I think that's where the element of AI, uh, artificial intelligence, come into play. Yeah, quite exciting stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh, my brain is firing in like a million different directions. I don't even know. <laughs> where to go from this. <laughs> well, I guess because the first my first comment was like it's giving black mirror <laughs> yeah, you are those people <laughs> you are taking our data it's so interesting even just thinking more like seriously but like also it's funny but also seriously thinking about uh, with this Roe v. Wade that just got announced, uh, mm. right? I've seen online people are saying you know if you have a period women who have period trackers stop like delete that app and not just deleting that app, but actually going back to whatever period tracker app you're using to ask for your data back so mm. that they don't keep. And apparently, like, I'm not going to name drop any of the period tracker apps, but apparently some of them have been notorious for taking that data and apparently like making money off of it or like selling it. So that's how I was mm. like, oh, my God, Tia is giving Black Mirror. <laughs> That, that, that's why that, that's why tag or like a major shop can sell you one time you're browsing the internet and you are seeing diapers you are seeing uh-huh. feed like baby formulas mm-hmm. you know like what's happening here maybe one person in your household is probably the the, the algo says they're mm. pregnant so yeah <laughs> um, based I, on certain i actually just babies. read an article about that about how well, was it out of our thread, but someone was explaining that it's not just because, you know, the whole like people saying like, you know, switch off your mic because TikTok is listening to you or Instagram is listening to you and then they're going to take your data and it comes up. But the person was explaining how like what you are saying that it's not just your data or like your input that's influencing your like if someone within my if we share the same Wi-Fi or something like if, some, yeah. Yeah, if yeah, someone in the same um, uses and then searches for something I start getting so they were talking about how they were at Thanksgiving and their moms or something and they had a conversation about toothpaste and they're the their mom is the one and then by the time they got home they were getting ads for, for their <laughs> <See>? moms <laughs> yeah but but I, I would say disclaimer my work doesn't go that far doesn't do right that now exactly. <laughs> I use I analyze data to inform policy and right. to inform so that's <laughs> That's not what you are doing, but definitely thinking about like what data is out there, how data Mm -hmm. is harnessed. And then once it's harnessed, you're taking that data and parsing it out and answering, or maybe actually starting out with like coming up with questions, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. and then answering them. Like I'm thinking about the example you gave about the antibiotics. If you can, Mm -hmm. do you mind sharing like what did that like experience look like? So what was the takeaway? Did you have any takeaway from the antibiotics research? And what, I guess, so you said for data sources, I think that be, let's narrow this down. For data sources, you said sometimes it's claims data from the health insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you mentioned the example of 
the project you worked in Eswatini with the antibiotics and trying to see are we over prescribing or not for children who have diarrhea in that scenario who so we know it's the data is the babies you know the baby they mm-hmm. go to the clinic and, and then they're prescribed that's the data mm-hmm. i guess who let's um who is it for so were you working like were you working for a, a private company where you was is this the government asking this question and then once you what were the results or outcome of that question and then what did you do was anything done about like those findings yeah so this pro this question was at the intersection of uh polypharmacy which is a problem across the world uh but also antimicrobial resistance which is also a huge problem right. that intersects health and other sectors so with this project we actually use hmis data so we yeah we use hmis data which is basically outpatient records um but to understand the extent of to, to sort of try to link it to antimicrobial resistance we also use you we used some uh data from the labs to then look at uh susceptibility for for a resistance to certain antibiotics mm-hmm. and this and this hadn't been done before mostly because the data is disjoint you cannot say patient a came in with a diarrhea and they were uh this test was ordered to, from the lab and they were prescribed antibiotics but what we did was try to understand generally across these two data sets or these two populations the ones that came for care and the ones that were actually a medical test or rather a lab test was oh, ordered yes okay. and then understand what is the response the finding were, were very interesting because we found that actually the most pres- most of the day, most of the patients that were for whom we ordered a test uh they were so the the findings basically are to look at stool samples to then look at uh what vis-a-vis prescription patterns mm-hmm. and we found that the samples sample results showed resistance to one of the mostly prescribed antibiotic which is a cause for further investigation wow. and also then understanding who and where exactly are these antibiotic prescriptions happening and you find that then you look at across you look across different years at different type of providers and then you see oh this specific type of provider has been prescribing above average antibiotic so for example uh private providers are mostly notorious for this because i come and say yo i need an antibiotic give me an antibiotic and i'm paying they give me an antibiotic i go and then this is if this is not captured in the data you wouldn't understand you wouldn't get that perspective of what's happening in in the system mm-hmm. so that's why we need strong uh, integrated health information systems across different countries so you can be able to link some of the behaviors to policy recommendations and then see if providers and health outcomes change over time yeah no let's just process that because wow that's oh my gosh so okay maybe like before i process what i'm thinking but let's just clarify a couple things in what you shared so you you had these findings did you okay was the data i had a question on privacy because you say mm-hmm. was it de-identified so it was obviously de-identified on the patient side mm-hmm. and you say yeah. you had to do it separately because you couldn't link it from the point of diagnostics to 
mm-hmm. um, prescription of medication and because they have to identify their patient, right, basically. So yeah. did you also yeah. de-identify the providers who were doing these prescriptions? Was that de-identified? Uh, so because you have, you have centralized labs, you have centralized labs or just from like two regional uh, labs, but we we couldn't link the the location of the resistant microbes but it was just looking across uh, a population segment um and privacy issues are quite big and important when it comes to these data sets and it's something that countries are learning as they go particularly uh-huh. developing countries and the developed countries like the UK, for example, mm-hmm. I would say they have robust controls of who has access to what data and what what are the processes that we can de-identify that data and even just protocols for working with with the data. Um, I've started my I've recently uh, started work in the UK. I'm working with and I'll potentially work with more patient data sets. I've had multiple and multiple of training on mm-hmm. data. Yeah. protection, data privacy, etc. And that's not always the case in some settings. So it is quite important to to have those uh, systems in place. That's wow. That's, yeah, you're right. I definitely, I think when we think about data, I think in my last two episodes ago, we were talking about like this buzz with data that's happening, you know, on the continent and then in the, basically in the age that we're living in, right? Data, 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 yeah. data so many times, like you were saying. And I think, yeah, that's a good point as well to think about regulation and, and protecting uh-huh. people's privacy and rights. So it's great to hear that, like, you know, in your current workplace or in other settings that is regulated, but you know, countries that are kind of like catching up to this age of big data need to also catch up, not just with the technologies, but also with the, the, regulation. the regulations that come with. So, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, and it's great to hear that you were working, you know, at home. With your <laughs> uh, so that's always great. I guess, can you, because your work sounds so hard <laughs> and complicated, and if I can't understand it... <laughs> if I'm having to break it down every two minutes, I can imagine, you know, a person with no background uh, might need to take a step back and kind of like think this through. But maybe while we process, you know, all these amazing findings you just talked about, can you tell us a little bit about, okay, so you're working with data sets, sounds like patient data or lab data or diagnostics data, and you're answering these research questions. So what does that look like for you? on what's a typical day for a computational health economist or what's a typical week or month what does that look like do you like sit on your computer or are you in hospitals getting the data like what does that actually look like yeah that's 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 a very good question and since i've changed uh careers a couple of times mm-hmm. uh different days look differently uh, i would say sometimes and depending on the, when you get into a project uh some projects for example, if you are doing a lot of secondary data analysis, you'll find that they already have the data sets or it's mostly collected by another entity, whether it's government or the health insurance payer or some other entity, an NGO or an implementer. So they already have, it's part of their process data, everyday data. So you just harvest the data and then you go answer your questions. Uh, and that might, that's relatively easy. But sometimes you get into a project quite early and you have to think through what are the, rele- what are the relevant questions for the various stakeholders in the room um, mm-hmm. and what's the best way to answer 
those questions. So for example, right now I'm working on a project that's trying to change how we offer eye care in a post-pandemic world. Uh, the the main question being, should we, like, can we decentralize eye care or should we keep it centralized? Because some of the equipment are very specialized. Mm. So you have to really invest in, in those equipments to ensure that uh, it's closer to the patient. And the, some of the questions involve understanding patient behavior or rather patient preferences for accessing diagnostic eye care services and doing right now i'm doing planning a discrete choice experiment something i haven't done before but i need to do and then do a cost effectiveness analysis of of it to understand uh if the proposed intervention is has more economic value uh, compared to what we currently have. So that's, and that differs from day to day. Sometimes I'm on the screen, looking at mm-hmm. papers, reading through papers, uh, summarizing findings, looking at methodology, writing health economic evaluation plans, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it really varies uh, depending on what's on the top banner. Or the fun banner uh, that at that point at that point yeah wow no that sounds cool yeah you 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 definitely it's so interesting because it doesn't matter no it matters but I mean like from the number of people I've been interviewing and other conversations I have it sounds it's more and more I keep I think we keep in public health at least in um with my current sample size. <laughs> Um, you know, there's like, for example, in my second episode, we were talking with a public health physician who was talking about patient-centered care, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, which sounds redundant, but it's actually a very necessary conversation, right? To hear about what it is, want. it is. Like, what are their preferences? And what do they care about? And then mm-hmm. it's really cool to see that you're also doing it in a completely different context and maybe for a specific mm-hmm. type of disease area like eye care, mm-hmm. but still, you know, applying those same principles of like, what do patients want? How can we make this easy or easier or more affordable or more efficient so that patients get the care that they need? And then it's also exciting, not only at the bigger part of like, what are we doing and why, but also like what you're using. Like we, I've never done a discrete choice experiment, but I do know DCEs because I've done it. And when when I was doing health workforce planning, we did in Malawi, they did a DCE where they were asking, and I was looking at attraction and retention of health workers mm-hmm. in rural, like in rural er- er versus urban areas. So they did discrete choice experiments there to kind of try to understand, you know, why does nobody want to go work in the rural areas? Or why is it when they go, they never stay a year? They never make it to a year and they go back. So it's like, oh, let's do a DCE, hear from the doctors, hear from the nurses, hear from the health workers, what it's like and what they would prefer or what would be needed what's the right, you know, payment model that would allow health workers mm. to provide the care that needs to be provided. And they did a DCE to come out with results of like highlighting the key needs of the health workers, whether it's the actual monetary compensation versus I need a car, I need a house with electricity, I need water, I need a job for my spouse while I work at my job, I need schools for my children and things like that. So it's pretty cool to see different tools uh, and different like ways of thinking or problem solving Mm-hmm. Um, being applied across disciplines within the health field. So it's almost yeah, like and I think, the same language. And I think with DCEs, something that I'm quickly learning, it's very much aligned with 
how you'd expect behavior to get. So for example, mm-hmm. if you are posted in in a facility in God knows where in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. um, how much money can we give you to change your decision such that you are willing and able to go to that uh, facility? So that comes back to yeah, the marginal rate of substitution across across the choice sets. Um, yeah, that's, and that's, that's economic. <laughs> so it, and that really is, I mean, I've only taken one economics class and I'm like, I'm never going back, but <laughs> I had to. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. I had so to go my, back and relearn what I did, I think, Times there's times in my career where I've had to like so for DCs I had to go back and learn what's a DC what like all these economics terms that you just said mm-hmm. <laughs> and even, exactly and yeah. for, for me I think I would have learned microeconomics quite better if it was presented in a DCE kind of uh, framework because that's something that you really want to know how much do you want to give up one aspect for the other and I'm interested in health so if you're talking about widgets what are widgets can we talk about something that I'm interested in yeah so I think that's that, that that's the direction that's uh, being applied yes. within a health context. yes within a health context which is why I'm a health economist Wow, I really like that. That is so cool. So yeah, I think, you know, all my econ people, the economics people, econometrics, you know, this is, uh, this is your plug. This is to show that we also need you in public health, which is pretty cool that any background can work in healthcare. Okay, so we talked about your typical day. Can we talk about then maybe... I just want to hear, I think this might be interesting because I feel like you're a little bit of a different guest in terms of the work you do from the people we've had before. We've had one researcher, too, but she was working on menstrual health and I don't think her background was econ related. So as a health econ person, as a person who works with big data sets, as a person who, like you said, you know, is thinking deeply about these larger, like I feel like significantly larger data sets and, you know, claims data and health insurance, um, God forbid we out open the Pandora's box that is universal health coverage, but we won't, <laughs> we won't. <laughs> but like, as you do this work and see the use of data and like um, get to be apply- applied in health economics and, and for impact. So given your work experience and the work that you do now, how would you, either how would you define public health? Like when you say I work in public health, or I'm, you know, what does public health mean to you? <laughs> uh this is this is a very good question it's a tough one. Uh, and i'm laughing because i just came back from a conference mm-hmm. and people were asked uh if they are uh, if they and this was a health economics conference they asked if they define themselves as economists or health economists okay. and some people define themselves as public health economists others okay. said they are public health economist uh and others <laughs> said economist so like public public. <laughs> <laughs> yes so so now coming to define public health as an economist mm-hmm. for me it it speaks to a couple of things one it speaks to the public uh which is the great population, population. yeah and it speaks to health which can be the status of health mm-hmm. it could be also an element of the system. So for me, it cuts across uh, understanding the things that make an individual healthy, the thing that makes a community healthy, and that 
constitutes this that is the systems that makes an individual health and a community healthy and then trying to maximize that health so mm. greatest health for the greatest number of people so that's where the economics layer comes into play how do you distribute the few health resources yes to the greatest uh, beneficiaries and that's where health economics lies right Um, and then for me i don't think i can separate public health from health economists mostly Mm. because i experience in systems financing and major systems reforms which has mostly been how do we finance and align result and align incentives to maximize health whether we're doing a cost effectiveness analysis mm-hmm. uh, we want to maximize health whether we are evaluating a new provider payment mechanism reform we want it to maximize health yeah so for me public health is at the intersection of the health of a community and individual and also the underlying systems that make that possible. Wow. I think I'm just going to, wow, this is amazing because it's completely different from anything I've heard in the past few episodes. And yet it is still a hundred percent like on point. (laughs) This is amazing. I think I want to do my PhD in my podcast. Yeah, I've decided. (laughs) like it's almost like a game of like what is the million ways in which you can describe public health and still be right (laughs) that is so amazing but yeah I really like how you broke down how you broke it down to like population and then you then broke down health to you know either the element the status of health as an individual or like you're saying tying it to a larger systems like outcome almost so well, wow, that's I never thought about it that way. So I'm definitely wowed. I'm definitely gonna listen to that this tidbit and like sleep on it <laughs> and think about. No, like, I think I think it, it public health is very much like an elephant, uh-huh. depending on where we've been, who we are. Uh-huh. We are attacking different parts of the elephant. Maybe I just told you about the trunk of the elephant. Yes. And someone has told you about the leg or the stomach. Right. So I think you're right. they, and they're all that's all the elephant. It's all you're yeah. right. It's that yeah the elephant right. in the room. You're right that um I think it's that metaphor of like you, you know you touch this part of the elephant you think it's hard, it's big, it's whatever. But it's all the elephant you're right and it's all public health, whichever out or background or area you choose to like zone in and focus on. And personally, mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite things about public health is that you're right. It's a big, big elephant and there's so many aspects to it. And all of them, at least for me, are important. And, you know, we all kind of like contribute to it. So that's pretty cool. And I'm definitely mind blown. <laughs> but maybe before, uh, I'm going to push us a little bit. Hopefully we won't go too much into this. But you did say at the beginning that uh, I think we broke down computational health economics, which I had put a pin on. We mm. we talked a little bit about the policy when we're talking about regulation and data, when you talked about the outcomes and further, further the outcomes in the Eswatini antibiotic study and like the further investigation. I think that goes into connecting these research outputs and outcomes and then what next kind of, I think that's the policy piece. But let's talk a little bit about health systems. I think you were starting to get into mm. maybe where you were talking about how you define public health. And since it's something mm-hmm. that you care about, um, yeah, let's talk about why, I guess maybe let's start with why do you care? Why do you 
why did you in your intro feel important feel it's important to highlight that you care about health systems as health system mm-hmm. research and yeah why 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 health systems research what about it i think in a parallel universe could have been an engineer okay and i like how engineers think in systems so mm-hmm. you have a system in equilibrium or disequilibrium right. you have a shock how does it affect the system so for example if you are thinking of health the health system overall you have different stakeholders you have mm-hmm. different mechanisms so it's this big machine right mm-hmm. uh, so you one part of it let's say funding is short for some external for as a reason of an external shock how does that and how does that affect how the rest of the system works so that is what medicines are available what doctors or what uh, human resources for health is available mm-hmm. um, but also in terms of the administration capacity uh, do we have anything or how will it affect it and then ultimately how will that impact health outcomes which i really believe the long term goal of health care and health systems is to prevent disease and elongate life and how does that those shock uh, affect the ultimate That's outcome right. mm-hmm. uh, yeah and these different parts of the system they like different shocks they affect different parts uh, and understanding how does each shock affect the whole system and sometimes different things happen at once so for example with covid covid it was very much a health care system but also it affected some other systems that are allied to healthcare so for example if you talk about the economy the economy uh you need the economy to function well in order health, to have the uh, enough financing for health mm-hmm. so how does covid affect or how does the impact of uh, COVID on the economic aspect Im- impact on health outcomes? I'm always thinking it in terms of si- of a system, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that that's the that's the best way to to look at it. And it sort of diverges from the current way of thinking, uh, particularly when it comes to low and middle income countries, because you have funding that is specific for HIV, malaria, TB, mm-hmm. uh, maybe some other diseases. And, yeah. and if you put in money that is specifically earmarked for those diseases, the system will adjust itself in a way that is that, that it will try to return to some equilibrium of sort so for example if you have money for if you if a funder gives money for a malaria microscope and that microscope can only be used for malaria does that mean we should have a malaria microscope tank and then and then one for tb and then one for TB and then one for the other diseases as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also in terms of if we if and if a funder funds one aspect, does the local government then reduce funding for that element to fund other priority areas? It could be within health, but it could also be outside the health sector. So for example, they're giving me five million dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I use $2 million to fund my military? That is up to the Ministry of Finance. Uh, but it, Ministry of Finance is still very much within the health sec- the health system per se, because oh, it yeah. is a colder in 
in in health outcomes and health in the health system. Yeah. So understanding how a shock in one area affects the whole movement. The whole system. It is a system, machine. Right. Yeah, it is a machine. Oh, it is a very complicated. When you describe it like that, I'm like, oh my God, it is so complicated. I mean, we have all these bits and pieces that we all contribute to, but it is part mm. of a larger, oh my gosh, it's reminding me of that meme. Well, I'm such a millennial. <laughs> but it's reminding me of that meme where the person is like, <laughs> the conspiracy theory meme, where the guy is the twins and, the th- and he's trying to explain. He's like, it's all connected. <laughs> But it is right. And you're right that like COVID was such a shock and it's a shock that we, I, you know, you know, no, no blame to anybody here. We weren't prepared for, or at least we thought we were, but clearly didn't, had not done a lot of like emergency preparedness to understand the actual impact. Like you're saying beyond just the health economy or the health system, right? How do you tell people to not go to work because their work exposes them? to a disease but then if they don't go to work then they're not going to eat and then they're going to be hungry and die anyway right so that's my my health is impacted whether i do or die right so and 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 also because you are saying some people shouldn't go to work that means maybe i don't get my drugs on time and who gets to go to work in such work uh, is important enough to keep going yeah, because you, you you cannot just like be beating pants and pods uh, to encourage right. people. I think you, you really need to understand. Again, coming back to the marginal rate of substitution for people to go to work in such, in such conditions without mm-hmm. feeling they are sacrificing their own lives yeah, uh, for, for, the, for the greater good. Yeah, so it is, it is quite interesting and it it can get philosophical and then you can also embed morality. Oh, yeah. yeah, the ethics, like should doctors live if they feel their health, the health, their own health and the health of their immediate family is at risk. Is that should, they take, should they take the day, should they take the, the time off, for example? Mm, or how much of them, or how can, whether it's governments or private sector employers, how can they ensure that the environments that these health workers are working in are safe enough or what amount of safety, right? Because we had health workers in different countries striking during the COVID pandemic, right? They're like, we're not going to go to work. We don't have PPE. We don't have gloves. So I'm not going to go to work if I'm putting my family at risk and I'm not being compensated for it. So some countries came up with models where they were giving what they called hazard pay or any form of name of their rights. So saying, we know we're putting you in a very difficult position. It's not your salary. It's an add-on to your salary to kind of compensate you for this risk that you're putting. But is that enough? And that's kind of what you're saying. That's a different question. (laughs) Ethics conversation. Yeah, but I think understand the the key point is understanding uh, how a shock Uh in this integrated system affects the whole system and the outcomes thereof and i think it comes back to our definition of public health and as a health like we in our conversation we've touched a lot of aspects i don't think we've just talked about my work per se uh and i think i would argue that my work touches a lot of these other aspects my part of my work is to understand uh if we are building a health system what key variables Mm -hmm. are important in this system and then trying to decipher uh how will these various elements of the system change due to uh one or more shocks in the system Mm -hmm. and i that's and I think that's where that's where your work is, yeah. That's that, that, and that's, that's the where, kind of like the where. economics, the health economics kind of like angle you're coming. And, 
Yeah, and the data aspects. And then you use the data to try to answer these questions. Um, Exactly. Oh my gosh, I got it. Please give me my title. I'm a health economist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) well, I cannot just give, I cannot just give the title liberally. You have to pass microeconomics, graduate level of microeconomics. You just said there is no using. Now you're saying, uh-uh, I'll scratch that. I, maybe I maybe they say there are levels. There are levels to this, okay? Just kidding. <laughs> no, but I hear you. You're right. Okay, but at least I think I finally have a grasp of, <laughs> imagine, known you two years, and today is when I finally have a grasp of what you actually are doing in this, like, uh, universal health coverage work and, like, computer, computational health economies. But this is, this is so cool and so great. And, yeah, I think... I think we've understood your passion, your interest, and where you kind of like came from and how you use your training and skills today to do the work that you're doing today. Maybe as we start to wind down, maybe can you say, what are your favorite, what's your favorite thing about work, doing the kind of work that you do? That's a good question. I think there are, there are different levels and layers to, to this answer. I think the first one being in terms of impact to society, trying to to have or to improve healthcare. And without understanding of the system, that means the the guys that are disenfranchised will always be disenfranchised. Without our work, we cannot bring, we cannot highlight some of the some of the impacts, uh, some of the health systems changes will have. So for example, I remember one time in one of my previous work, jobs, we're evaluating the impact of a single payer plan in the US. So if everyone was on Medicaid uh, and got rid of uh, private insurance, so looking at who would benefit the most and how much it would cost the, the federal government, it sounds like a a very uh, progressive plan, but in terms of current, to get in terms of our current data on who is accessing what kind of care, mm-hmm. you find that most of the time it will it will benefit it will benefit the highest income earners because they are the ones. Uh, yeah, so you you find that some of these reforms mm-hmm. uh, they have the high the the highest probability of benefiting uh, high-income households, mostly because they of the current level and type of care that they consume. They know where they can get that care. For example, mm-hmm. uh, in terms the the knowledge barrier is not is not as uh, predominant compared to low uh, income households. But also, when you look at the impact of universal health insurance, for example, who is most likely to benefit from that. Low-income households tend to benefit the most. And why? Because now they can access cover without uh, w- w- without bearing a significant uh, cost, so to say, because you have the, the major premise, the primary premise of health insurance is that the fortunate mm-hmm. help the unfortunate mm-hmm. and for the most part the unfortunate are the people who are the low income earners mm-hmm. uh if we're just looking at uh income level income. Uh, yeah but then you can also link so for example in the u.s context you can look at impact of expansion of medicaid on or on bankruptcy. So, for example, looking mm. at states that expanded Medicaid versus reports for bankruptcy, or even look at changes in credit score in states that have expanded Medicaid. So, 
yeah. being able to inter to to sort of link these various data sets to come up with a picture of what's happening and how and who is stands to benefit from a major system reform such as universal health coverage or uh, shifting from a fee for service to prepayment of of some sort, who stands to benefit there? And I think that that what that, that's what gives me joy. Waking up in the morning and say, "Okay, this is the question that's on my hands, and these mm-hmm. are the people most likely going to." Uh, that also highlights an element that we haven't really discussed, which is feminism in healthcare and health service Ooh, delivery, yeah. because uh-huh. that is exactly what I would interpret feminism. What, that's what feminism means to me. Understanding how policies work and uh-huh. for whom they work and how uh-huh. you can change such that they work for the greater good and f- particularly for the people that have been disenfranchised for the longest uh-huh. time. Oh my God, we can just, you know, drop Mike, leave. We're done. It's okay. <laughs> <Let's do it. laughs> you know, you've heard what we needed to hear. You know, it's enough. We're good. <laughs> the, ma- the magic word. <laughs> you've done it. <laughs> no, but yeah. you know, you really, yes, I can see how that, that's a really big source of motivation, right? To realize the actual impact of the research questions and the things you're digging in and trying to answer, especially when you realize that with healthcare, you know, mm. we're looking to, when when healthcare systems work and they work well, you know, it, it benefits, like you said, unfortunate versus the unfortunate, right? It been, mm-hmm. you know, or disenfranchised, it benefits those who systems tend to look over. And that definitely, mm-hmm. you're right, has, you know, you can take a feminist angle with it, you can, you know, go on other axes mm-hmm. of like, you know, whether it's income, you mentioned the low income versus high income, uh, you know, any other group of people, right, that wouldn't typically, you know, fall through the cracks of systems when they don't work, right? Mm-hmm. No, that is, yeah, I mean, that's, you're definitely right with that. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go deep into that. <laughs> but who knows, we might have a follow-up episode. <laughs> Maybe people will come <laughs> They'll need feminism, more. Feminism, public health. <laughs> oh, femi- we need yeah. the health economics of feminism. People will come back, see, as you learn from me. Yeah. No, but that's that's really, yeah, I think that's definitely something that keeps me going as well, to know that even if the health questions seem removed, ultimately they're looking to answer this question of like Uh, health for the population and then improving the ultimate goals, like you said, um, healthcare for all or like healthcare available in its best form for people who need it. So that's pretty cool. We're really running out of time, but I really have to, you know, be balanced. So I have to ask. I have to say, yes, we've talked about what you enjoy, the things that are great. Let's hear a little bit, like, where'd you get frustrated, you know? <laughs> working in public health, uh, working with data, working in health econ- economics, working, you know, working for governments and finding out that they're providers that are, you know, over-prescribing. And, you know, we have an antimicrobial resistance epidemic on the verge, right? Like, what are the key things or some things that you find frustrating in the work that you do or challenges that you face? It's a very big question, and uh, probably you've highlighted the layers of it. One is working with data, two, working with government. Uh, maybe the third one would be just an overall frustration of public health uh, and global health in particular. The, uh, the first one, uh, working with data, oof, data systems, 
better. Mm-hmm. Uh, in countries they are particularly in Africa justice systems they're still being developed and it matters who pays for that for those data systems because that af- that influences what data gets collected for example mm. as the HIV pandemic was coming in it was mostly or as we're trying to really dig our nails into it um those are the first health systems or maybe let me say electronic, because we've always been collecting books and books and books of patient records. But in terms of uh, putting everything electronically, those were the f- some of the first. And now you're thinking, hmm, HIV doesn't just affect your blood cells and your mm-hmm. immune, but it may also affect your mental health. Mm-hmm. So how do we capture the mental health aspect and realize oh we've developed the system but it doesn't capture that because the priorities change from time to time given the priorities of the funder maybe mental health wasn't the most like the fourth thing in their in their agenda Uh, so now we cannot ask further probing questions uh because of of the lack in data and also i think the elements of data access policy that is huge. I shouldn't be able to go into a data system and see Fiona uh, came, blah, 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 blah. Uh, because that also affects patients' behaviors, for example. You have, in, in some communities, you have people that go three, they pass three clinics to get to to get to their ARVs mm. for the month. And with COVID, we may be having monkeypox or any other pandemic coming mm. up. Where and how will those people access that? I don't if, want, you know, I don't want the pastor from church to know I have HIV I, or my yes, neighbor. Exactly, that privacy. As people who access the data and as people who have developed the system, uh, I know some systems once you put a lot of measures then it becomes frustrating to access the data but i think there is there, there is a point of inflection uh we need to work towards that where it's the optimal we have optimal uh policies in place to protect the data of uh the of patients and they have confidence in the system to disclose a lot of some of the, uh, at least some of the personal uh, aspects of their health so that we can have strategic yeah. information to plan health, to finance health, and everything in between. And then, in terms of uh, working with governments, oof, this this is one of my favorite parts. Uh, let's I start a podcast on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should just we, should, we can have a whole lot. We can have a podcast uh, just for that. I think it is important, uh, to, and as people who are coming into the system. It is important to understand the system, why they have done things the way that they have done them before we go all the shark on, this is not working, you are not doing your work, this is not working, you are not doing your work. But understanding how exactly did you get here? And sometimes that is a clear answer and sometimes it takes like three months to working within the system to understand how it got there. But also I think understanding that Government priorities change from time to time. Yeah. Uh, gov- governments are working within a political cycle. And how does that influence the, the priorities yeah. of healthcare and healthcare service delivery? Right now, we have Roe v. Wade removed 
which mm-hmm. is part of, you cannot divorce that from the politics of a government. Uh, so understanding how those political div- uh, movements and political decisions uh, and political cycles impact healthcare. It could be lagged. So, Those like, for example, they're shocks, like you call them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for example, and it could be lagged. For example, the Republicans are no longer in uh, in government right now, but mm-hmm. you have something that is. But the the Supreme Court was most at least the last three judges that were appointed yeah. by Republican president. That means right. th- th- they are influence in terms of ideology that will have a light and term and uh, it will influence how the courts yeah. decide for a long time so understanding how all those influence how those bits and pieces affect access and health yeah. outcome is key but also be patient enough to work through those changes to always push for better governance more transparency etc etc so for me it's both a frustration Mm -hmm. but also a plea to other people working within government particularly who are working outside of government assisting government to understand some of the nuances of that happen when you work with yeah and public uh when think about population right it's i think Mm. it's because like if you were working Right. If you're thinking about treating 10 people, that, that's a different thought process and, and versus when you, the, you know, the decisions and the choices, the things that we're talking about are impacting, you know, literally millions of people. Yeah, so th- th- there is that. And then when it, the third part is in the health, uh, the global health system as a whole, I think it has a lot of room for growth mm-hmm. and change particularly when it comes to treatment of local staff and mm. there, there's this whole decolonizing global health movement which i think oh is God, very yes. timely, uh-huh. which, which i think is very timely uh-huh. and you cannot divorce that from how we finance global health right mm. uh, because who gets the fund and who is most likely as for example as you've said in your in previous, uh, as we said in previous episodes, that uh, people feel, feel frustrated that you cannot, you are working on a contract, but who's funding that contract? Mm-hmm. You all, as as an institution, you also need to think through who is most likely going to get new funding for you. So the passport element, mm-hmm. uh, politics, local mm-hmm. um that's a very big issue that i think people need to think about and we are going to lose a lot of talent uh to go to other fields because for example with my data analysis skills mm-hmm. i can go to there's nothing that is stopping me from going to work for a telecom for a telecoms company uh, or from finance or anything as such but if we can try to understand and try to appreciate that these things actually happen because you could bring this thing up to your boss and like oh that's not happening you are just dreaming but appreciating <laughs> that these things are actually happening then trying to chat in a way forward in terms of how do we address these things because i would say how global health is set up right now you'll rather be an expert in a different country than work in your own country where you understand the system where you understand the people where you understand the nuances of the cultures uh, if people if some 
if you, for example, you go for a meeting and they're not talking, you can say why they're not talking or if mm. they're, are they really authentic? Are they true to their words or they're just mm. talking for saying saying things? Like of saying things, so and I I do appreciate that we have a lot of work kind of for us in terms of uh, integrating and decolonizing global health for the greater good. But again, it comes to understanding the power dynamics, uh, who's where, and also mm-hmm. there is one element that we that the warriors of decolonization. Uh, sometimes fail to to acknowledge is self-preservation. Mm. You may be the work person in the team, but believe you me, uh, you will not last a year or two in that team. Uh, so you may just observe things. Uh-huh. Do you have power to act on it? Yeah, it's about people power. who have power and authority to act on it need to listen. Maybe it's not even a dissolution of power because sometimes the power is abstract, but then uh, empowering people or sharing that power uh, mm. and acknowledging when people are best suited to talk and then valuing what they're talking about oh and God. taking so that into decision making. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. I agree with all of that. No, you're really bringing out a lot of frustrations with the larger like global health field. Yeah. So I think you also brought up a lot of solutions. I just want to acknowledge that. I think you've also in outlining your frustrations. I think you've also been especially this idea of like share, like let's share the power, right? Let's let's allow like I like who said this is very basic, but like I think Gabriel Yunus talks about like lifting someone to the light and holding them there i think there's the need for those with more power to allow mm. kind of like yeah so that um there's a, it's a little bit more equitable i think equitable uh, global health and public health care practice there's a need to think rethink that in the decolonizing global health movement and yeah i'm thinking that's a direction i would want to see otano take you know in future seasons or in future conversations that's definitely mm. something I'm, I'm interested in. And I'm great that it's, I'm glad that you brought it up as like a frustration. And I think it's good that it's a frustration because I think to be frustrated is like step number one, you know, yeah. in trying you know to figure this thing out. Yeah. yeah. No, that's cool. And like, thanks for like just bringing that up and just like taking it home. <laughs> yeah, we should, we, should, we should have a Utado uh-huh. decolonizing public health somewhere in Greece or... <laughs> No. Once we, once we have sponsors. No, no, no. We want to have it where people never have their conferences. <laughs> Why is it? Well, I mean, this would be nice for vibes. Don't get me wrong. But uh, okay, we can we can have it in uh, where in Livingston. Oh, oh my god! Let's have a decolonization conference in Lamo. Like, let's go to the countries where it won't be hard for anyone to get a visa. Or to go in because right that's right. a thing conversation that's come up right it's hard to get you know all these conferences are being held in certain countries parts of the world where people don't have access and that's where the knowledge you know knowledge generation knowledge management then becomes centered and and that creates you know the power mm. dynamics that you were talking about the power dynamics yeah yes yes let's do it <laughs> let's, let's find the okay, money let's, get, let, let's we'll get a grant now we need to get a grant let me do I it hope- no <laughs> I hope Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation <laughs> is listening. So great, but see, like 
I feel like it's great interviewing people I know. And I feel like we get into these conversations, which we've also had offline, by the way. And then we just keep going. And before you know it, we're making a two-hour episode. So <laughs> let's wrap this up. And nobody but, wants to stay for two hours. But we might. No, we won't. We won't. But let's maybe, to kind of wrap this up, I think you you brought up a lot of important things. I think I don't even know in terms of like just unpacking it, how I'll do it. But it's been so rich. It's been so great. I think we have time for only one more question. So I'm going to ask that you tell us maybe... I think you kind of already asked, answered, what do you know now about the field that you wish you understood earlier? You unpacked that when you're talking about your frustrations and challenges with either the field in day-to-day work or uh, the key stakeholders that we get to work with in our work. But maybe, and I think we talked about skills a little bit, so I'm going to have to let that one go. But let's talk about, let's just give us your word to the wise. So what would you tell a younger version, let's say, you know, a young Astia, go back in time, you meet Adrian mm. Astia, and he's like, I want to be a health economist. What would you tell them to, like, what three pieces of advice would you give them? Or two, top three things you would tell them that they absolutely, like, need to cherish, need to hold on, or need to do to kind of, like, make them successful or do well in this career path? I would say two things, long-term planning and mm-hmm. short-term action. The short-term action, always understanding what you want to do. And if you don't know what you want to do, knowing and being honest with what you don't want to do. I think it's Oprah who said, knowing what you don't want to do is the best thing if you don't know what you want to do. And being open and honest about, about that. And that will allow you to explore things and alongside that understanding that the field of work when you start entering the workforce mm-hmm. there there are two things you need to learn one you need to learn the work mm-hmm. two you need to learn how to work and oh my college well, teaches you, you say that again what that is so deep <laughs> no you, you you two things you need uh-huh. to learn the work uh-huh. And you need to learn how to work. The first one, when it comes to learning, that's something that you probably have learned in college. Uh-huh. You do your econometrics. This is the skill set, the trade. Yeah, the, 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 the hard skills uh, that uh-huh. you need to learn. Uh, but when it comes to learning how to work, it means navigating the nuances of the work uh-huh. situation. And for and we we are at different places. Uh, some people are first generation workers in their mm-hmm. house or formal uh, workers in their households. Uh, and some people have mentors and menti- uh, mentors. And some people have access to mental health resources that others may not have. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that may affect how you learn how to work. But I think it is it's it's very important to learn mm-hmm. how to work with different people mm-hmm. and understanding that sometimes it's not about you it's about yeah. the system in which you find yourself in and uh. therefore it comes back to do you have the power to change the system or the better option is to find a different system altogether uh. or there is so much at stake from moving that you need to just remain here and learn what you need to be And then coming back to learning the work itself, Mm -hmm. uh, always be open to learning. Different times calls for different projects, call for different 
skill sets be open to that learning. And for example, right now I'm doing DCEs, which I have never done before, um, but I am I'm learning as much as possible. So never be afraid to expose how much you don't know. And I think this is and this differs from industry. I've worked with consultants and I've learned, I've worked with academics. Mm-hmm. Academics are better at handling uh, not knowing than, than consultants. Consultants are paid to give you a solution. So mm-hmm. if they don't know the solution, that means they're not doing their job. But academics, they are paid mm-hmm. to answer and un- they're paid to answer a question. And it's not always that they know. The answer to the question mm, otherwise okay. yeah uh, so working across these different fields has helped me to understand really how do people think but also how can i best do my work so being able to be honest on the job in terms of this is what i don't know this is what i need to know and when do i need to know this by and for consultants sometimes it's like you need to know this by yesterday but also being flexible to understand that okay i don't know this who do i know that knows this learning how to work on it yes so the learning how to work and learning the work are those are sometimes they're very intertwined mm-hmm. you can't uh, divorce one from the other and i think i have learned how and i'm still learning how to work because mm-hmm. i've changed teams and roles quite a bit even for someone who uh, is still an Eric Kelly career person uh, so I think I, I would say that understanding that you don't have to know it all at one mm-hmm. point but you when you get into the workforce you are just not required to learn the work but le- also learn how to work mm-hmm. and calls and different team dynamics calls you to work differently so be cautious of that it's not sometimes it's personal but most of the time it's not personal <laughs> right oh man yeah. that's yeah i needed to have heard this like a year ago where were you Zee? why didn't you tell me this no but this is I, I thought we've known each other for two years <laughs> learn how to work learn. oh my god that is i mean yes i've learned this lesson is this the first time i'm hearing this statement i've definitely i've like earlier in my career, what I was learning wasn't necessarily the work. I think you're right that you're typically, especially in our field, right, which tends to be very technical, you learn the technical uh, stuff. You have your degree, yeah. you have your master's, you have your PhD. Exactly. You know how to do the work, right? But you uh, learning how to work was the greater part work. of like yeah. four years of my career. And oh my gosh. Yeah, and and, and, and I think okay. and I think it also depends from the industry. So I coming into consultancy work Uh technical advisory work I was coming from academia where not knowing was like a good thing everyone doesn't know what they do they know how to do it but we still have questions that are unanswered and then coming into a consultancy world there is a lot that sort of suddenly changed just like oh I have to be careful about this too I didn't know this was a thing. Apparently, it is a thing. So being always cautious, and that doesn't mean that you have to put on an armor and not bring your full self to work, but it's it's a balance. It is a game of balance. And without that balance, the system wouldn't work, right? Mm, yeah, so right. You're so right. Oh, I love this. This is why I started this podcast. I keep saying this almost every other episode that this is not for everybody. I did this for me. <laughs> 
I am harnessing all this knowledge. <laughs> no, but you're really sharing a lot of wise words that I think are applicable across different fields, not just in public health, to be honest. Mm. And yeah. it will definitely be crucial, like you say, doing our field, we work with multiple stakeholders and, and all of that. So thank you so much for those words of wisdom that will not only apply to younger versions of you, but to everyone who gets a chance, gets a chance to listen to this episode. Um, but yeah. yeah, thank you so much. I think maybe, I don't know if you have anything you want to plug or share as we wrap up. Maybe just the whole field in general. If you feel this is to the listeners if okay. you feel you have you feel that the current approach to health care and health systems financing and provision is not working or you have a frustration on how we are currently providing uh, health care and health services maybe it is time to think about health economics because you will be given to at least you learn tools how to think about how the system yeah. works and then from there, you can envision solution to some of the problems that you have been seeing. And coming from work into my master's, that's where I actually realized that it is important to have uh, some work experience before going into grad school so you can have like a solid understanding or grounding of your studies for example yeah but health economics is open to everyone you don't need to learn the crazy formulas all the time there is okay um, (laughs) that is less uh formulaic and theoretical so health economics is a welcoming field for everyone you should ask your doctor about health economics if health economics is right for you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're doing like those ads <laughs> side effects may include it's like two minutes <laughs> no but you're right you're right i think that's definitely the takeaway that's been the takeaway from me as well is like looking at economics or health economics as this framework to yeah. answer public health questions and, and contribute to how we think about health systems and healthcare system research that's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. Never looked at it that way. So thank you so much, Sia, for being on this podcast and for taking time to share your thoughts and your experiences and just shedding a light a little bit into the work that you do and how you got here. This has been Utano Public Health Chats with your host, Fiona. And today we were hosting Sia Bunga Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.